0: I was. I spent some time on a missions trip in Mombasa, Kenya. Mombasa, Kenya is a border town, uh, I should say this, a coastal town. And if you have ever thought to yourself, ooh, this city that I'm in is muggy. Anybody ever been to Houston, Texas? Imagine, if you will, Houston, Texas, if you took it out of the United States and put it in an oven. Okay, imagine that. Mombasa, Kenya's humidity. I don't know if this is possible. Some of you, if you're a meteorologist, you can correct me later. It was 400% humidity. Correct me later if that math is off. In fact, this is one unique thing about Mombasa, Kenya that we noticed that as soon as you turn off the shower water and you dry off, you start thinking, I missed a spot or the shower water's not gone, but instantly it's your own human sweat. That's how, that's how humid it is. Anyways, uh, Mombasa, Kenya is a um, city that is in Kenya, right on the coast. So uh, one, one year I was there in the summertime with a friend of mine, and we were doing a missions trip, and I experienced very vividly the discomfort of being an outsider. Very vividly. It was intense. Um, it was, we, we, when we got to our very first host home, we were served rice and beans, little pork and rice and beans. Anybody? Amen? Anybody? Yeah. Not in my notes. I'm going to keep on going here. Um, and, and we were given this portion in a bowl, my, my um, pastor friend and I, and we sat with pork and beans and rice in the bowl, in our lap, for a good few minutes, looking at each other, looking around, and we couldn't eat. And the reason we couldn't eat is because we didn't have utensils. Nothing to eat with. And we were urged to eat, and the host home wasn't eating because we're not eating, and they're urging us to eat, and we're kind of like, uh-oh, I think we're misfiring here. I think we're misfiring. And they, um, laughingly, as though we are... Total ninnies were like, no, 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 Are you, you're waiting for, yeah, is there like a fork? I mean, are we waiting for the, and they said no, and they made this motion here. You know what that is? We eat with our, I told you this once before, right? We eat with our hooves. I was like, what? I don't know if you've noticed my hands, but they may be small, but they ain't hooves. You know what I'm saying? I like, so what they do is they just squeeze the rice together with the rest of it, and they just eat with their hands. I felt like a total moron. I didn't cover, uncover this in my cultural study before we landed there. Um, but that was just the beginning of feeling like an outsider because on Sunday morning we got to their worship service and I experienced something I've never experienced before. First of all, a major portion of the whole service was in Swahili. So I didn't know what was happening. There was expressions of joy and excitement that were a very shrill-sounding, tribal-oriented kind of, um, the only thing I can think to call it is, it's not really um, chirping, but it's like this very, very high-pitched sound of joy and celebration or whatever. So I didn't have that in me. I wasn't dropping that on that church family that morning, just listening. Then they do something similar to what we do in our culture, but very different. They, they honored the guests who were among them, but they didn't just say, hey, some of you are guests, welcome for being here. They said, how many of you are guests? So we were like, we better raise our hand because it's more than obvious, right? So we raise our hand and then they said, come on up here, come on up. So they, per- they had all their guests come up and stand in the front of the service, and went on and on, introducing each one of us and how we ended up at the church and what have you. And I thought to myself, we are definitely uncomfortable, right? This is not what we were aiming for. And we learned very vividly how uncomfortable one can be in a different culture. And yet, at the same time, as the service progressed, I noticed in the preaching, that the preaching was primarily focused on the way in which God is able to no longer count our sins against us. And I was like, that resonates. I'm with you. Then, the second part of the um, song service, we came back and we sing songs that were based on an inner joy provided by God that isn't based on our circumstances. I was like, you got me there. Two out of two. And that was the focus of the service that celebrated the work that Jesus had done so that he didn't, God didn't, wasn't, uh, was no longer counting our sins against us and also provided an inner overflowing joy that's separate from and beyond our circumstances. That resonated. And all of a sudden, I felt halfway across the world while we were baking in our own skin, I felt, I feel like I'm home feel like I belong here. This resonated with me. And as you can imagine, it only took a few short hours and we felt like we were standing and worshiping and eating and singing among our lifelong family. Didn't hurt that they're great huggers. And it's so vital for us to recognize, oh, by the way, and they closed out service with communion. Communion. Everybody belongs. You belong to Jesus, you belong to us. Same thing, same as what we're doing. Same as what we're saying. Same Jesus that brings us all together. Outside the Kenyan church that day, outside our church today, I'm sure you've noticed the um, life-altering level of disunity among our churches and among our culture. I would, um, as an amateur, I would make the observation that our, our culture is hemorrhaging with strife and division and conflict. If you follow any of the church denominations or movements on Twitter, there is a profound emerging disunity among, within denominations that is seemingly unprecedented. And um, describing the culture war an author in Christianity Today. His name is James Eginton, And James Eginton wrote a column where he said the world is not primarily divided among religious boundaries. He said the world is primarily now divided among the boundary of populist or progressive. And because of that Divide because of that clash culturally. What we have in the world is two Americas, two Brazils, two UKs, two the whole world. I don't know if uh, this is news to me. The whole world is uh, split and is being driven by outrage to the extremes of populism and the extremes of progressivism. Populism says, um, let's. Do and hold on to and bring back the very things that made us great. And progressivism says, let's untether ourselves from the the the, the past so that we don't continue to make the same mistakes and we can give we can free ourselves from any kind of past oppression. So that's the divide, and politically uh, we've been kind of wedged to one side or other. And James Eginton, the author, says that the church has become a tool of leftward or of rightward political coalition, that the church is being um, outraged into one side or other. So here's the question. The question is, is world peace ever really possible? Are we going to see world peace? Is world peace ever possible? Is it possible that we could ever have peace among human beings ever again? And it reminds me of God's answer. If you, uh, In fact, we could even look at other cultures and find the answer, yes, it is possible to be at peace. I recently read that in the Gaza Strip, that there are Palestinians working side by side and shoulder to shoulder with Israelis, Jews, to serve those who are uh, underwater in poverty, those who are suffering in their own economic distress, And imagine this, if you know anything about the background of the Palestinians and the Jews working side-by-side and shoulder-to-shoulder, well, what's distinct about that? How did that happen? How are they working side-by-side? I I, I discovered that those who are doing that are who who they would describe themselves as born-again believers who trust Jesus. And now they're serving the needs of people in the Gaza Strip that are in distress. So among those who belong to Jesus, among those who are united with Jesus in faith, there is a path to peace. There is a path to peace. And we're going to talk about this idea today in the book of Ephesians that through Jesus, all the people who have been rejected by God, all the people who have been um, excluded by God, have been reconciled and reinvented into a brand new family. And Paul describes how that happens in the book of Ephesians. He explains to the emerging church at Ephesus. If you're trying to get a visual on where Ephesus is, it's the modern day country area of Turkey. And he describes in this passage of scripture in Ephesians chapter 2, he describes our backstory, the backstory of the Ephesian believers. He also describes their rescue. And then he speaks to the Christians and describes our transformation. And he is talking primarily to the Gentiles. Now, how many of you, I'm curious, how many of you grew up in some kind of church family? Raise your hand if you grew up in a church family. Okay. Uh, Raise your hand if you did not. You did not really grow up in a church family. It's unfamiliar. All right. How many of you who didn't grow up in a church family... Remember when you started to become a part of a church family, and you remember how um, I don't know if the word's uncomfortable, or or you felt like an outsider. Anybody, raise your hand again if you've ever felt like an outsider within within a church family. Yeah, I often have conversations with people who are joining us for worship, whether it's uh, through online or they've been visiting us, and they describe to us, uh, they describe to me, and they'll say something like this: as a former Catholic. I always felt like somebody who was leading the service knew something I didn't know. They knew what we were supposed to do next. They knew why we were doing what we were doing. I just couldn't catch on. And they say things like this. In essence, I always felt like an outsider. And Jesus, by God's compassion, allows all the outsiders to be reconciled together with the insiders, and then the finished work of transformation is to reinvent us into a brand new family. And if you're an outsider, that's exciting. If you're an insider, that's offensive. If you're an insider, and yeah, we'll get to that. I, 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 um, you guys don't have till one o'clock, right? You don't have, let's get going on this. So check this out. So Paul, on our backstory. And by the way, if it's easier for you to follow along with some notes on our church app, you can go to Sunday, we uh, um Sunday service or weekly messages and when you click on that, the very first click on the top will open up a little note um segment and you can fill in the blanks and and uh, otherwise stay fully engaged if if that helps you. So, um you Paul says, this is, such a great, this is such a great passage. It's, it's hard not to dig up all of it. But you, now he's talking to Gentiles, non-Jewish people. Okay, So Paul's writing this letter to the church at Ephesus, and he's directly now talking to people who are not Jewish people. And he says, you lived in this world, and you lived without God, and you lived without hope. That was their backstory. They were making it up as they went along. Pagan, polytheism. Uh, atheism, uh, all kinds of other um, philosophies that they were trying to live their life. And so, consequently, um, we were excluded by God. You were outsiders without hope and without God. Now, some people might say, wait a second, how is it possible that God excluded you? Because a pop culture view of God says that God loves, who who does God love in the pop culture view? Everyone, right? Does God love humanity who he created? Yes. He sent Jesus because God so loved the world. Um, But keep in mind that the fall happened way back in Genesis. Um, Pastor Jonathan brought us back to the backstory last Sunday uh, in Genesis, and God excluded you So, um, God loves everybody, but only certain people had access to God in heaven, and the rest were outsiders. So, um, don't forget, he says, that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. Anybody see that movie, The Outsiders? I wish I remembered anything about it because I'd put it in my sermon today, but I don't. So, I just thought, let's mention it. 80s movie, is that right? 1967? Oh, the book. Yeah, it's probably based on a... So um, so don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. What does that mean? Well, you were called by the insiders. They would call you names, and they would say, you're uncircumcised heathen. And, and this word heathen, right? Godless, soulless, worthless. Great song written by 21 Pilots called Heathens. Great song, all right, you guys know the song? Did you hear that now i I know that this is this could be, but I've said so many better things over time. I mean so much more important things, right? No applause, nothing. That happened recently too. I don't remember what it was. It was a handful of months ago, and I was telling Pastor Jonathan, I don't know if he missed it or was away, I was like, you, you, gotta, you, you wouldn't believe this. I mentioned this one thing that was like an eruption of excitement from our, from our uh, church family. And uh, I was like, note to self, keep saying that, whatever that was, keep saying that. So uh, 21 Pilots writes the song called Heathens, and, he, and, and in it they say, all my friends are heathens, take it slow, right? They're outsiders, I'm assuming what they're writing, and I could be wrong, of course, is that, that, that they're outside the faith. Um, so the Jews were calling the outsiders names. And this is important. Um, Paul says you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizen, citizenship. You were out on the outside. There were citizens. There were non-citizens. You're not the citizen. You weren't the citizen. You were without God, without hope. You were excluded from citizenship. It wasn't like nobody was a citizen. It was like some were. They're the insiders and you're the outsider. And in the people of Israel, you were the ultimate outsider because the people of Israel, the Jews, were the ultimate insiders. Now, how do you get to be an insider? Well, in the Old Testament, there was a people who was elected and selected by God sovereignly because of nothing that they did. It was his own sovereign choice. He selected the people of Israel, the Jewish people. And he said to them, I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my what? You're going to be my people. So, you're going to be insiders. Everyone else who's not Jewish is going to be outsiders, and this is how we get the beginning of, of history and the beginning of the Christian, um, Christian Bible. And he promises to prosper and protect the Jews. Why does he do that? So the Jews are happy? No. He promises to protect and provide and to prosper the Jews so that they radiate with God's glory. So that they are a people that shine so brightly, the rest of the world starts to ask about their God because their God is so glorious to protect them and provide for them and favor them and prosper them that they become like a radiating light of God's glory among all the wicked nations in the world. But God has a remnant who shines brightly because he's actively at work setting them aside and setting them up. Does that make sense? (laughs) I love it. I love it. Now, I don't know what else you're gonna love, but I'm just gonna keep. I might keep going back to that. I might keep going back to that. Um, so the plan was for the outsider, outsiders to eagerly crave to be a part of the God, uh, the God, who these people belong to. Okay, so it was less about Israel and more about God. Um, so what God did was He provided purification laws that would set them apart both in their holiness, so they were ceremonially clean, but also God gave them laws in which provided a way for them to kind of wash themselves of their own sin, selfishness, rebellion, self-righteousness, or whatever else. So God gave them a way to set themselves apart and to wash themselves. And he did so with all kinds of rules and a system of the law that they had to follow, and they had to follow that perfectly in order to really shine brightly in order to be uh, obedient to God. So Paul goes on and he says, you did not know the covenant promises God had made. You didn't even know what they were. God makes this covenant with Abraham. Uh, he promises prosper the people. He's gonna have, a, um, he's gonna have so many um, descendants that will outnumber the grains of sand on the sea. He, they didn't know any of the covenant promises that God had made. And the Gentiles lived in this world without God and without hope our separation from God felt like shame and fear. The separation from God that the Gentiles felt, felt like shame and fear. Let me say that again. The separation they felt in their life without being an insider manifested itself with shame and fear. Shame and fear. And this letter is written to people who carry in their own burden of shame and fear. Fear that they don't know how to overcome death. Shame that something they sense about themselves, something that, that that they sense about their own personhood, something that they sense about their own life, just isn't good enough. It just doesn't measure up. It just isn't as good as the neighbor or the other's. And because of our guilt and shame, we people tend to struggle quite a bit. We struggle to believe that God could accept us because we're too evil. Or some of us on the self-righteousness side struggle to believe that God could accept somebody else because they're too evil. They're too um, shameful. So our solution, where do we turn overcome that? Where do we look to be rescued from our shame and our fear? Now, um, you remember by any chance reading about um, Sigmund Freud, right? He's a um, kind of a well-known figure in uh, psychology, psychiatry, and so on. He said that the way that the world has tried to overcome the sense of shame and fear... Is through implementing and kind of unleashing our super ego that we would prove ourselves, that we would protect ourselves, that we would advance ourselves, we would affirm ourselves, we would assert ourselves, and we would do all that we could to achieve in the in the eyes of people uh, who matter to us to overcome our guilt, to soothe our sense of uh, our sensation that that we're just not good enough not good enough for my family, not good enough for my God, not good enough for my employer, my, not good enough for my spouse, I'm not good enough for my kids, and that the superego is running on overdrive trying to prove ourselves. The thought being that I personally, with enough focus and enough motivation and enough drive, I can fix what's wrong with me. I can achieve and actualize and accept myself if I just follow my ego. So the Apostle Paul says, nice try, nice try. And the people who have lived like that are exhausted and depressed and miserable and um, still, still uh, carrying the weight of guilt and shame. It's never enough. So um, the Apostle Paul explains where to look for our hope, where to look for our rescue. And here's what he says. He says, but now, Gentile, outsider, you have been united with Christ Jesus. Don't forget, we're on a theme here, he says. You were once far away from God, but now something dramatic and drastic has occurred. You've been brought near. You're an insider now. And you've been brought near to him through the blood of Christ If you're new to the Christian faith or you're somehow um, looking in, you maybe sense or feel like you're an outsider, you're not quite sure about the Christian faith or what kind of church we are, this phrase here, blood of Christ, would not be um, unfamiliar to us. If you are a regular gospel-centered church attender or worshiper or you've somehow... you've joined us and you, and you have a, you, a saving faith of your own, you'll know that almost everything that we speak of that brings joy is the combination of the shed blood, the blood of Christ and his ultimate resurrection from the dead. So that's not new to us. We'll um, get to that specifically on, on Good Friday. So we've been brought near and this is the way that we can say it, that God rescued, reconciled. God reconciled you. So God excluded you, but then God, by his own work, he reconciled you. He brought sinners. There's two parts to this. Let me tell you both parts. This is is exciting. You might not clap, but this is exciting. When I thought about this, God doesn't just reconcile you vertically to the Father in heaven who created you. God also reconciles you horizontally to people who don't share your culture, your language, your opinions, your convictions, your political affiliations, or your nationalism. He, he, he somehow, in his wisdom, found it best to connect me and you with the worshipers in Mombasa, Kenya. So all nations have been reconciled to each other. So it's not just a vertical reconciliation with God the Father, but it's also a horizontal reconciliation with God's family that we are being told by Paul we now belong to. He brought sinners near to God. We're super reconciled to God because he's super satisfied by the sacrifice of his son, demonstrated by the blood of Jesus. Now, reconciled means the restoration. Okay, right on cue. Right on cue. Um, The restoration of God's forfeited favor. Reconciliation here means that God had favor, you lost it, and now it's been returned. That's what reconciled means here. Now, this is affected by God's justice. His justice was satisfied. And because his justice was satisfied, God could replace his punishment with His favor. God is just, and He has to execute his justice. The punishment of sinners, by the way, and justice demands that sinners be punished. What's the wage? Some of you are Bible folks and you, you church family, you know the answer to this question. What is the wage of sin? According to, it, it's death. And God's justice says, someone has to pay by death, otherwise I can't reconcile because of my character of justice. You can only be reconciled if that wage is rightly paid. Justice demands the payment of sinners. The death of Jesus satisfies justice, and so God reconciles us to himself. And this reconciliation makes God our friend, And it enables him to pardon us. It enables him to save us. But it also enables God to bring together all the other nations and tribes to join the family. And he um, does it like this. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people. When, in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. I love that phrase, wall of hostility, because it makes me, it, it kind of gives a phrase to what I sense is happening in our world, right? Walls of hostility. Even between family members, spouses, church members, walls of hostility we're seeing here that Paul is describing to the Gentiles that God dealt with those walls. He pulled those walls down. He reconciled those who were divided by these walls. This is um, fascinating here. This is a picture of a church in the town of Nazareth. Uh, You recognize Nazareth if you know about Jesus' birth, his incarnation, right, where he he came from. And um, Jesus... I should say, uh, Jesus' church here in Nazareth is called the Church of the Annunciation. And it's uh, fascinating real, really to study it. There's a picture of the entryway of the church. Uh, here's a picture here of kind of the upper level of the church. And one of the things that's really, really amazing is that the church is said to stand over the site of the home where the, where the angel Gabriel announced to Mary that she's with child how cool would that be? And I wanted to tell you that this church here is on the site of no significance. The church that you're currently in. thought I'd throw that out there, or at least one that I'm unaware of. So this church here is over in um, a place that is very sacred, and the church is filled with 40 different, 43 different national mosaics of what it would look like if the angel Gabriel was announcing to uh, the Madonna and uh, of the uh, of the incarnating child of the soon coming Jesus or the even in these depictions the arrival of Jesus. So um, fascinating. These are mosaics that are hanging in the church, and all the different countries have a representative mosaic. And it's fascinating to see, over here on, the far, on my far right here is Poland, and over here in the middle is Italy. If you're Italian here today, Italy. Then you've got um, Ecuador over here, we're not going to go through all 43, but uh, Scotland, Thailand, and they're beautiful, they're absolutely stunning. But something dramatic you'll notice about every single one of them, they're different from the next one which is different from the next one, which is different from the next one. And you get a vivid portrayal of how every culture sees the, uh, the Mother Mary and the arrival of the Christ child in the lens of their own culture and of their own people. You get to see how they internalize that when they picture a a, a hero of their faith named Jesus, they don't picture the Jesus you picture. They don't picture the Jesus that someone else pictures. They picture the Jesus that they're familiar with. And from every different country, as you can imagine, people find their country of origin and they take a selfie with it and they're like, we found him, Jesus, Mary, right here. Looks just like us surprisingly. And they identify with the different aspects that these mosaics point out about their culture. There's the one from Nazareth. We're familiar with that one if you've um, been around the church faith for a while. And then this one here, um, super unique. wanted you to see this. This one is the Ukrainian version. Beautiful, right? Amazing. And um, Right here we've got the one from uh, another one from Ukraine. Fascinating. This is sorry, Croatia, Croatia, and then Ukraine. Absolutely amazing stuff. And then, if, and of course, you probably thought to yourself, "If is there any of them that were inspired by the Marvel Universe?" Yes, the one from the United States of America. I, can't, I kid you not. I kid you not. I mean, look at that. If you can see that by any detail at all, the first thing I thought was, was this, this thing, <laughs> this mosaic, come out of the Marvel Universe? I mean, one of the Avengers that's going to be sprung on us coming up soon? So that's the uh, United States mosaic. Uh, what's interesting, though, is that the display, each one bears the characteristics of the culture in which it was created. Now, the good news is, that Jesus transcends all those lenses. He appeals to all those lenses. And that the faith that you and I celebrate includes all those lenses that experience Jesus in and through their own culture. Swahili worship songs, eating with hooves, guests being made to talk in front of total strangers from another country and another continent. So, Christian faith unites all of us into one people. And our faith is not exclusively Western. Our faith is not uh, predominantly Anglo-white. Our faith is not preferring America's faith culture. God reconciles insiders and outsiders of every culture, every tongue, tribe, and nation. I love that about our faith. Love that about our Jesus, that everybody is. um... So here's a question. How did God do this? How did God do this? Because insiders and outsiders would typically normally be hostile towards each other, right? Hostile enemies. But he didn't just, when God reconciled insiders and outsiders, he didn't just remove conflict. He actually empowered his people for peace, Isn't it different if you've raised kids? Isn't it true that you can have in your family chaos and with some force and sometimes verbal brutality, you can end the chaos, right? Go to your corner, go to your corner. But it's different when you're in the minivan and everybody's singing the same song, everybody's sharing the good times and good vibes, In other words, there isn't just, God just didn't say, no more chaos. God actually empowered us to live in harmony with each other. And he does so by doing this. He fulfills the demands of the law by his life. Jesus himself was sent, and one of the reasons why he was sent was to fulfill those laws the laws that God had written and had given to the Israelites, the Jews, and that Jesus would do that in perfect obedience. And he also, and we mentioned this before, right? Jesus paid uh, this bloody payment, this death. He absorbed the condemnation for those who were breaking the law. So he fulfills the law, lives life obediently and perfectly, and then for those who have already broken the law, Jesus con- uh, absorbs their condemnation. We call that I mean, one, one phrase you might think of if you're a theology wonk is substitutionary atonement, right? Right. So, um, and this is where our transformation comes from. And this is how God kind of puts it together and brings this newness. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people. One new people. And this this actually... I want to mention something here that, that um, is a conviction of mine. And it's also possible that you don't really like this conviction very much. But can I share it with you anyway? Thanks. Um, I, am, I have my severe reservations about making sure everybody in our North Central New York community knows what denomination we're affiliated with. And make sure that everybody knows what denomination Um, we come from. And someone has mentioned to me before, are we ashamed of that? And, And my answer is wholeheartedly no. But God has made His people by divine plan and by the shedding of his own son's blood, he has made us not a multiple of denominations that you have to familiarize yourself with all of the technical nuances of the doctrine before you feel comfortable fellowshipping. God did the mighty, miraculous, universal work of reinventing one new people, not thousands of separated people with their minutia of distinction. So that's that's a (laughs) conviction of mine. And what that means is we want to present the world to the world and to north-central New York. We don't necessarily want to put out there in front. Well, we're distinct from the other Christians down the road. So just so that you know, uh, the first thing we want you to know is that we're not like the Baptist church. We're not like the Methodist church. We're not like some other church you might be familiar of because we have a distinctive. And if you look in the Bible and you start to parse the grammar and look at the way that you can uh, interpret the nuances of this doctrine, we kind of own something special, so that's why we are who we are. Right? So I don't mean for that to sound cynical. Um, I think it's far more important that we identify ourselves as being in unity on the essentials with the universal church of Jesus. And that when people come across us, they say, this seems like a church that's a part of the one new people around the world. This church isn't saying, oh, let me tell you, you're not going to get this anywhere else. I've told you before, if you ever hear from this platform, you're not going to get this anywhere else. Run for the hills. Run for the hills. You're not going to get this anywhere else, says every cult leader ever in the history of the world. And Paul says, especially in the book of Jude, Paul says, we have a faith that's come down from the Father, that has been raised to life by the Son, that's been empowered by the Spirit, that's been handed off to the apostles, that has been now empowered to the church, and the church is built on the apostles, and it's the same faith as it always was and has always been. So we're inheriting a faith. We're not getting a faith that divides us. We're getting a faith that makes us one new people. And we're a part of one new people. Uh, The clapping is amazing today. I'm telling you. You can tell it's close to Easter's. You can just tell. So we are a part of one new people. And that means this, that when you agree on the essentials and you come to saving faith and when you're united with Jesus and you're interested, so what's distinct about our church? We have our distinctions. But we follow with those distinctions. We don't lead with those distinctions. Someone said to me one time, if we're not careful, wouldn't we have, isn't it possible that someone could end up at North Central Church and, and, and or someone could end up at like North Syracuse Baptist Church or Northside Baptist Church and they were looking for North Central Assembly of God Church? And I was like, I guess it's possible. And they were like, doesn't that bother you? Like, why would that bother me? God is at work, and my hope and prayer is that the same Jesus they would discover here, they would discover somewhere else down the street. And then if God kind of moves someone around and they want to join our church family, we're not building the north central kingdom here. We're building the kingdom of God. And we're a small part of that kingdom. There's beautiful churches in town. And we sometimes send people there, sometimes eagerly. Just kidding. (laughs) Just kidding. I'm kidding. So here's what God did. God had to reinvent you because You were far from God. You were separated by a wall of hostility. You were without hope and without God. You were excluded and disqualified as a Gentile. By the way, I should have made this distinction a long time ago. Um, God is speaking specifically to the Gentiles and not speaking specifically of of the Jews. And he invented an entirely new species of human. An entirely new species. How did God do this. He did this by ending the system of the law that made the, the Hebrew people distinct from everybody else. He ended the system of the law. He said, that system, we're uh, going to have that system actually fulfilled, and I'm going to send my son Jesus to do it. And Hebrew identity, by the way, was supremely unique. And it was chosen, you might remember, to, to distinctly radiate the uh, beauty, holiness, justice, glory of God. So, the Ten Commandments, if they follow the Ten Commandments, in this system, you would set yourself apart morally. If you also went through and uh, um, followed the laws of holiness, 600 plus of the laws, by the way, some of them you'll find in Leviticus. It's a thrill to read through them all. They were 600 plus laws of hygiene. Laws related to generosity and justice, blood sacrifice to actually uh, uh, cleanse themselves of their, of their sins, their rebellion, their disobedience. But all of that, as you can imagine, that was their system and it provided for them a unique identity that set them apart from everybody else. That's why they could say, well, we're insiders and you're nothing but uncircumcised heathens. Because they, this was their system. And this system is what brought them prosperity, protection, and provision from one single creator, God. So they were the supremely exclusive people of God. And now, God is expanding his family to include non-Jews. And he's bringing them together. And together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. By the way, let me point out, this is by means of the death on the cross of his son, and it's by means of no other way. No other person, no other system, no other holiness, no one else's righteousness, no one else's perform- performance, no one's denomination or heritage or family or church or culture. Simply by the death of his son on the cross, which we will recognize on Good Friday, a special service. If there's any part of you that really finds Christmas Eve meaningful, Good Friday, Join us as we um, recognize the death, the hopelessness, and the darkness of the despair of the death of our hero and our rescuer on the cross that sets us up for a glorious empty tomb celebration uh, a few days later. And also our hostility towards each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you, Gentiles, who were far from him. Peace to the Jews who were near. So there's already a People who was near, and then there's a people who was far. So now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So we all get to come to the Father. There is no more supreme or superior race, there's no more supreme or superior ethnicity, there is no more supreme or superior culture. By the way, when you love your culture, go right ahead and love it. Love it because it's different, not because it's better. That'll change your life. Love your culture because it's different and it's familiar, but, but no believers who belong to Jesus can love their culture because it's better than someone else's culture. Now, in some churches, there is unifying power, and it isn't the work of Jesus that brought us all together and reinvented one new family. Other churches may be rallying around or unified around the same preaching style, the same music style, or some of them share the same enemy, whether it's a pop culture enemy or a celebrity enemy or a philosophy enemy or whatever. Sometimes they gather around the same dress code, the same fundamentals, the same um, convictions, Convictions that they share together about whatever pop culture and patriotism and pop culture and and uh, the uh, um, the same um, the same despair and disgust with outsiders. The outsider is the enemy. Other churches, non Christians, political parties, and they've taken on and they've galvanized themselves. And all that stuff is short-term and all that stuff falls apart and all that makes God's people ugly people to each other, right? What a thrill that we can say the real unifying power in our gospel-centered church is this, that we all share a common dependence on Jesus and we all share an equal access to the Father through Jesus. Common dependence, equal access. Common dependence, equal access. We have more in common with people of other races, ethnicities, political parties, if they belong to Jesus, we have more in common than what separates us. And we depend on Jesus for our own access and acceptability before God. We don't depend on anyone or anything else. We all equally, with no exceptions. So where does our humble willingness, real quick, real quick, where does our humble willingness to be reconciled to each other come from? Um, what it means is that we recognize our need. If you are looking for, and you're open to God humbling yourself, and, or humbling you, and you're open to the possibility that um, God wants to use humility to bring you in into this one new family, you recognize my personal need for Jesus, that me and my way of living, my way of, of worshiping is no longer better than anyone else's. I'm not an insider, and there isn't any outsider's. I love the way Tim Keller puts it. Timothy Keller says, God does not see the world and sort the world good and righteous, or good and bad, righteous and unrighteous. He separates them near to him or far from him. And we all get near to God the same way by being united by faith to Jesus who gives us accessibility to the Father, reconciles us and reinvents us I'm living in a new family, so I must recognize I share exactly the same need as every other tongue, nation, and tribe. Also, uh, I reject my exceptionalism beyond Jesus. My effort, my status, my ethnicity, heritage, values, performance, it's all irrelevant for access to God. There is no exclusive club, and I'm not in the VIP line, right? There is no exclusive club, Holiness and Righteousness Club, and I'm in the front of the line, and then they got the commoners, the outsiders in the alleyway. So I recognize and I reject any notion at all that I'm getting exclusive access to God. I reject, I recognize and reject any notion that I have any qualifying reason except for being united with Jesus. So this means I can reject and resist self supremacy, I can reject and I can resist self-righteousness. It's humbling to need Jesus. It's humbling to rest in Jesus. It's humbling to look at another tribe, tongue, culture, nation, and say we belong together even though we're very different. Even though your mosaic looks a lot different from my mosaic that's hanging over there in the Church of Annunciation, we are one new family and you know what? I would, I would Imagine North Central Church is at work in North Central New York embracing the one new familyness of other believers. How fun would that be? I had an opportunity to meet the chaplain who um, is serving down at the rescue mission um, who are on the front lines of meeting the needs of the hungry and the homeless and we're proud to support them. When I met the chaplain, uh, I told him how eager I was to be um, taken on a tour of what he's doing and how he's doing it to help meet needs of people. And in part of me, in preparation this week, a part of me is just excited to theologically and practically meet the part of my family that is really distressed, who hope in Jesus, but are as much a part of my family as you are every Sunday. What a thrill to know that God's at work and he's providing everybody the same thing, my son Jesus. Would you, let's pray together. Father, we're grateful today for the joy of really being rescued from all of that exclusion, that Shame and fear forces us into dark corners of places without hope and ultimately without you. But you, miraculously, by your own mercy, did all the work to bring us back and to return to us the favor that was lost during the fall, the garden, when we were outsiders, separated, condemned. And then Jesus... And I pray today, God, that you would help us with our reinventedness, our new speciesness, that it would be attractive, winsome, full of joy and peace. That you'd help us to put down the stones that we throw at people who we don't agree with or whose mosaic looks different from ours. We pray today that you'd help us represent you well, to love well, and to be welcoming as we... Live with your spirit indwelling in us, we pray that you would find us welcoming all the others who's indwelt by that same spirit. We're grateful. We rejoice in that. And just before we're done praying, I wonder, I wonder if there's someone here today you might be tuned in in our live stream. Sitting here in our auditorium. And you sense that you indeed today, if you took inventory of where you're at, you would consider yourself an outsider, not from this church, but an outsider from God. And today you want to get right with God by resting your trust in Jesus. You can do that. And you don't have to attend church. You don't have to sign up for anything. You don't have to pray a magical prayer. You simply you simply turn from trusting and relying on your own work and you instead embrace and you plant yourself. You root your faith and trust in the work of Jesus. And you say, "I am not the solution to save myself. Jesus is the solution." And you get to renounce and repent from all the ways you've lived for yourself. And then this transformation occurs. If you decide to do that and you talk to God in that way today, we're with you. We want to walk with you. You can um, tell us on our church app or scanning that QR code, you can say, I trusted Jesus and I would love to hear from someone or tell someone that I belong to Jesus. And we welcome you into his family, not our church family necessarily, but into his family, which is global. Global. Father, thank you for saving souls. Thank you for sanctifying us. And we rejoice with you today, with each other. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.